0: So, I don't know if you guys are aware, but there's this cough, this sickness that's going around right now, and it hit my family, whoa, Uh, it hit my family and me too, so if you hear me sound like I'm dying up here, don't worry, I'm not, Uh, so please be praying and bear with me as we look at Psalm 51 this afternoon, Um, as we look at Psalm, what's that, I got water, I'm good, yeah. Uh, as we look at Psalm 51, um, we got to remember that the psalms are poetry, right? So they're designed to evoke emotion. And they were also compiled in a specific way after Israel's exile to remember God's promises and to look forward to the future kingdom under the reign of the Messiah. In that context, we got to ask, What emotion is Psalm 51 intended to evoke? And what does it contribute to the anticipation of the Messiah? And before we read this psalm, let me pray and ask the Lord to bless our time in His Word. Father, thank You for blessing us with Your Word, for blessing us with this psalm. I pray that You would cause Your Spirit to sink Your Word deep into our hearts to change us into the likeness of your Son. Please allow me to speak your truth in such a way that you're glorified and I'm obscured. Prepare our hearts to encounter your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 51. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgments. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. The occasion for writing this psalm was when the prophet Nathan revealed David sinned to him, as we read earlier in 2 Samuel. David had done some pretty terrible things. I won't get into all the nitty-gritty details, but he was guilty of some of the worst sins, adultery and murder, among among others. In the moment his sin is exposed, his emotions are palpable. 2 Samuel 12, 5 says that David's anger was kindled against the man in Nathan's story. He even condemned this fictional character to death, which is really what David himself deserves for his sin. Then Nathan drops the hammer. You are the man. Can you imagine the shock Can you imagine the shock to David's soul as his hypocrisy is revealed in that instant? He thought he got away with his sin, but Nathan showed him that his sin cannot be hidden from God. Isn't that what we do though? Especially with secret sins that nobody else knows about, we hide them. We pretend they don't exist instead of confessing them In repentance and seeking forgiveness. After Nathan got done explaining the consequences of David's actions, David responded in humble confession saying, I have sinned against the Lord. David fully knew that the condemnation he pronounced against the guy in Nathan's story was rightfully his. But then, Nathan says something that is just as shocking as when he revealed that David was the man in the story. He says, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. What? You mean the just punishment for David's sin is just wiped away? Yeah, absolutely. And it was in this context that David wrote Psalm 51. The emotional context of humiliation due to his sin being called out, dread due to the just consequences of his sin, and an intense wave of relief, joy, elation, and thanksgiving that his sin would be forgiven. These emotions progressed through Psalm 51, as David wrote, through three phases. He begins by highlighting the problem, which is indwelling sin, the humiliation and dread at the consequences for the sinfulness of mankind. Then he moves on to the solution, which is actually the new covenant. The humble realization that the only way to overcome sin is for God to do it for you. Then he finishes with the response, which is humble worship because of the relief, joy, elation, and thanksgiving of being forgiven. Now, this psalm is written in a poetic style called parallelism. Basically, one idea is conveyed in two lines that say basically the same thing but in slightly different ways to sort of triangulate the meaning. This sort of poetry is not intended to be ambiguous or overly metaphorical. It's intended to be precise. So, that the full weight of the emotions that go along with these lines can be experienced by the reader. The similarities between the lines convey the main point of the couplet, and the differences help us see exactly what the main point intended to convey. So, the first section highlights the problem of indwelling sin in verses 1 through 5. When David says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, he follows it with a parallel statement. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. You see how those are kind of saying the same thing? That's the parallelism that this psalm is written in. This is the plea of one who has realized the gravity of his sin and its consequences. In the first couplet, David conveys his sorrow over his sin and his knowledge of God's character. He knows he has sinned and he dreads the consequences. So he appeals to God's character, his mercy, and his hesed, his loyal, steadfast, covenant-keeping love for his sin to be wiped away. In the historical context, though, David has already been told that God had put away his sin. But in this emotional retelling of David's experience, these would be his thoughts right after David said, you are the man. The next couplet says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Not only does David admit that he needs God's mercy, but he also says he needs to be cleansed from his sin. The differences in these two lines show that the cleansing he is requesting is not just a quick wipe down, but a thorough cleansing, a deep clean of every corner and crevice of his life and a cleansing from every form of sin. Then David says, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Even if David could keep his sin a secret, it would eat away at him, because he would always know of his sin, and it would keep coming to his mind, reminding him that he cannot clean himself. He acknowledges, who he has sinned against in verse 4, when he says, Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, this does not mean that his sin was only against God and not against anyone else. Clearly, he sinned against Bathsheba, Uriah, Uriah's family. I mean, really, he sinned against the whole nation of Israel, behaving as he did as the king. By saying that he has only sinned against God, he's saying that the priority is with God. He sinned against God more than he sinned against anyone else. And the reason he admits that God is the one who he sinned against the most is because God is the almighty creator of everything, but also because God is the one who is the ultimate judge of his soul. He continues so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. God would be just to condemn him to death for the sin he has committed. But David goes on to explain where this sin comes from. He says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. This is not an excuse. Like, I was made this way, right? Right? It's the reality that David's sin is not just from his sinful actions. It's ultimately from the sinful state in which all people are conceived. People are not sinners because they sin. People sin because they're sinners. We need God's mercy. We need him to clean us because our sin will eat away at us. Our sin is firstly against God, and he is just in his condemnation of us because we are utterly sinful, even from the time we are conceived. Can you feel the tension? This is a huge problem with eternal consequences. We need a solution because all of us are in the place where David found himself. Thankfully, David tells us what the solution is in verses 6 through 12. The solution is the new covenant. Now, when David wrote this psalm, the new covenant in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36 had not been written yet, but it had been hinted at by Moses in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. Moses wrote, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the hearts of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live." David was under the Old Covenant. He was under the Law of Moses, which was never intended to be a means of overcoming sin. It was intended to showcase sin and to make our inability to overcome sin apparent. The only way to deal with sin under the Old Covenant was through the sacrificial system, which looked forward to the ultimate sacrifice of the Messiah, God's Son, Jesus. As we work our way through these aspects of the new covenant, I want you to notice that none of these have anything to do with David's actions or your actions. The solution here is 100% God's work. And you and I are simply recipients of his salvation. Our part is the last section of this psalm, we'll get there in a moment. But this section, the new covenant, this is God's part. So how does David articulate the new covenant as the solution to the problem of indwelling sin? He starts off the solution by stating, behold, you delight in truth. In the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart to overcome sin we must be taught wisdom and truth by God himself truth can only come from God this past quarter at at Cornerstone I took an apologetics class I had to write a paper defending a biblical epistemology that's a big word right so epistemology is the study of knowledge like how we can even know things at all. I won't read you my paper, but I'll tell you that it was fascinating to see how the triune God of the Bible is the only viable ground for us knowing anything at all. God has revealed the truth of his existence in his creation, but we all suppress that truth in unrighteousness apart from his word and the Holy Spirit. The same is true of our sin we downplay it we ignore it and we suppress it and without god's truth we cannot be free of it to overcome sin god must teach us Now david continues in the solution by saying purge me with hyssop and i shall be clean wash me and i shall be whiter than snow he had said a similar thing back in verse 2 but here instead of Commenting on the need for cleansing, he comments on the sufficiency of God's cleansing. Hyssop was the herb used for ritual cleansing of lepers to clean out their rotted flesh. That is a vivid and intense picture of the extent of God's cleansing. He can wash away the leprous affliction of our sin that's eating away at us, and we're fully cleansed. The defiling graffiti of sin on our lives is washed completely away, so there's no trace of it anymore. We're completely white, white as snow. To overcome sin, God must teach us, and he must cleanse us. Then the next couplet, David says, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. The joy and gladness that he's speaking of are the results of learning obedience through discipline. The Lord disciplines those he loves in order to teach obedience. It may not feel loving in the moment, but looking back on what was learned through the discipline produces joy and gladness that God would not leave us to our own devices. To overcome sin, God must teach us, cleanse us, and discipline us. Next, David says, Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Because our sin has incurred God's wrath, the only way to be free of the eternal consequences of our sin is to be forgiven by God. David knew that God was a forgiving God. Because Moses had written about God's forgiveness. In Exodus 34, 6-7, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation How can God forgive sins and still by no means clear the guilty? Those two things don't seem like they can go together, right? It's because somebody's got to pay Speaking of the coming Messiah, Isaiah 53, 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus paid the penalty for our sin so that the Father would remain just in his forgiveness of sin. This is what Romans 3:26 says, It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. For David, this meant that forgiveness came from looking forward in faith to the Messiah who would pay His penalty. For us, it means looking back in faith to that same Messiah, Jesus, who paid the penalty by dying on the cross and rising from the dead on the third day according to the Scriptures. To overcome sin, God must teach us, cleanse us, discipline us, and forgive us. The next couplet is very similar to the New Covenant as it's written in Ezekiel. David wrote, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And Ezekiel 36, 25, and 26 says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. This is also reminiscent of Moses in Deuteronomy 30 verse 6 where he said that God would circumcise their hearts. Now the heart and the spirit are synonymous as the seat of the emotions and the will in a person. It's where decision-making happens. And according to Jeremiah seventeen nine, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Clearly, our heart is not able to overcome sin on its own. Because apart from God's intervention, we are spiritually dead, deceitful, and desperately sick. To overcome sin, God must teach us Cleanse us, discipline us, forgive us, and change our heart. And then in verse 11, David mentions another huge aspect of the new covenant. He says, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Now, it sure looks like David has reverted to describing the just consequences for his sin, like he did in verses 1 through 5, but... I don't think that follows with the context. I don't think David is speaking of, his, of a consequence for his sin. In Hebrew, the verbs used here are in the imperfect tense, which has many different nuances depending on the context. It could be that David is asking God to withhold judgment, but the grammar also could mean that David is stating that these things will not take place. I prefer the translation you will not cast me away from your presence you will not take your Holy Spirit from me David might have been remembering how Saul had displeased the Lord multiple times and how the spirit of the Lord had left Saul but it seems more likely To me anyway that he's reflecting on the solution to his problem rather than the consequences to the problem the solution is God's abiding presence and the indwelling Holy Spirit. God will never leave us or forsake us. There's absolutely nothing that can separate us from His love in Christ. The New Covenant in Ezekiel 36, 27 says, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Obedience to God can only come from the Spirit dwelling inside us. So to overcome sin, God must teach us, cleanse us, discipline us, forgive us, change our heart, and put His Holy Spirit within us. In the last couplet of this section, David writes, "...restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit." A reminder of the joy of being saved from sin and death can guard against sin and keep us willing to fight against sin. On the flip side, sin is always crouched and ready to strike if we forget our salvation. Because life gets too busy, things need to be taken care of, the world seems fun and pleasurable. This is why God tells us to preach the gospel to each other. It's also why he tells us to participate in the Lord's Supper together. We have to constantly be reminded of our salvation as a motivation to overcome sin. So to overcome sin, God must teach us, cleanse us, discipline us, forgive us, change our heart, put his Holy Spirit within us, and remind us of our salvation. God does so much for us, doesn't He? I mean, just look at that list. Amen. Realizing how much He does should cause a response in us. It certainly caused a response in David. In verses 13 through 19, we see David responding to God's amazing remedy for sin in humble worship. He says in verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. This couplet shows the response of telling others about God's mercy and forgiveness. He says that he will teach transgressors and sinners, but there isn't a single person aside from Jesus who is not a sinner or a transgressor. Everyone is a sinner. So everyone needs to hear the good news of God's mercy. And forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Everyone needs to hear it so they can be reconciled to God. David goes on to say, Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. The mercy and forgiveness of God should cause us to sing aloud of God's righteousness and praise him for his amazing grace that he would love even a sinner like me. David wrote these lines depicting his tongue, his lips, and his mouth, praising God as if they're doing it of their own volition. Once God's forgiveness is truly comprehended, praise breaks forth seemingly on its own. Have you guys ever felt that? Have you ever meditated on the gravity of your sin, and the magnitude of God's love and forgiveness, and praise seems to well up inside of you without warning? The message of the Gospel stirs the emotions, but only if the Holy Spirit is inside of you. Only if you've been given a new heart and a new spirit without these things given by god the gospel is just a list of facts that will likely be suppressed in unrighteousness not only does david respond with his words but he also responds with his actions in desiring to give god a sacrifice for the forgiveness he has received he desires to do this but he knows that god does not need or even want more sacrifice because the sacrificial system again, was designed to point to the ultimate sacrifice of the Messiah. He says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Sacrifices were designed to put in the minds of the people that death was the consequence for sin. And a death had to occur in order to deal with sin. In David's response, he had already been granted forgiveness. So, what more was there to do? If forgiveness had already been granted, then a sacrifice would be unnecessary. David was looking forward to the sacrifice of the Messiah as the basis of his forgiveness. And he understood that the response Was not more sacrifice but a humble heart willing to run to god for forgiveness instead of running away from him in pride or in shame in the last few lines of this psalm david depicts the proper use of sacrifices and offerings in light of god taking care of the payment for sin on his own he says do good to zion in your good pleasure Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. It's in God's sovereignty to bless his people that offerings of praise and worship are to be given. The realization of forgiveness and blessing from God should cause us to want to give back to him. This is why we have giving as part of our worship service. God has blessed us so abundantly that we desire to give back to him. God gives to us cheerfully and abundantly. And so we desire to do the same, to give back to him cheerfully and abundantly. So we've walked through Psalm 51 we've seen that David progresses through three stages of a right response to sin. First stage was an acknowledgement of sin against God as our primary problem. The second stage was receiving the new covenant as the solution to the problem of sin and how it's 100% God's doing and not ours. And then the third and final stage was responding to God's mercy and forgiveness in worship as we tell others about it, praise God for it, and offer gifts to God in response to his lavish gift of salvation. Did you notice that this is the basic flow of the gospel? You're a sinner in need of salvation from God's judgment. Jesus, God's Son, died on the cross in your place and rose from the dead so that you could be forgiven and reconciled to God. Have faith in Jesus, repent in humble worship, and be baptized as a proclamation to everyone that you belong to him. At the beginning, I mentioned that we needed to see how this psalm anticipates the reign of the Messiah. So how does Psalm 51 do that? Well, it directly anticipates the atonement afforded by the Messiah's substitutionary death and resurrection. This is a crucial component of the reign of the Messiah as he purchased for himself a people from every tribe and tongue and nation to be his kingdom's citizens. I also mentioned that we needed to see what emotions Psalm 51 evokes. So what emotions did we experience in Psalm 51? Well, it's a progression, first from sorrow to shock to elation. Sorrow over the state of our sinfulness against God. Shock at the lengths that God has gone to reconcile us. And elation at the amazing gift of forgiveness that we have received from God because of Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf. Do we respond to sin with these emotions? (coughs) Excuse me. I think it's more common that we respond with guilt and shame rather than sorrow. We respond with introspection and despair rather than shock at God's forgiveness. And we respond with introversion and defensiveness rather than elation for forgiveness. We get so wrapped up in dealing with our sin on our own or wanting to look good, that we don't confess our sin. We don't feel that our sin is forgiven and we can't respond appropriately. It ought not to be that way. A confession is also important to have others pray for you and help you in your fight against sin. We're told in Scripture to pray for one another, help one another, and bear one another's burdens. Now, if you're struggling with sin, confess it to a brother or sister in Christ so that you can have someone praying for you, helping you, and bearing your burden with you. I know it's a humbling experience to admit your sin, to admit that you're a sinner, but we're all sinners, Every last one of us in this room, and those of us who've experienced the forgiveness of God as Psalm 51 depicts, are more than willing to help any of us fight against sin by reminding us of the truth of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we know that you are the almighty creator, ruler of everything. And we confess that we are sinners. Each of us has sinned in our own individual way, and each of us deserves your just judgment for our sin. But you've already paid the price for our sin with the blood of your son, Jesus. We don't have to pay that price And more than that, you've granted us forgiveness. When you look at us, you don't see our sin anymore. You see the righteousness of your Son. You've given us your Spirit. And you've given us a new heart and a new spirit, causing us to want to please you in obedience. And Father, your amazing grace and mercy are more than we can even think or imagine. Words do not do justice to the depth of the gift you have given to us in our salvation. We stand before you awestruck at the wonder of your forgiveness that we could even be called your children. Your forgiveness is too good to keep it bottled up. Give us boldness as we declare your gospel to each other and to the world, as people are in desperate need of your forgiveness. Remind us of your gospel so that we can battle against sin and help others in their fight as well. And Father, I pray that you would grant us humility to confess our sin to you and to each other. And we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.